This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It's Saturday morning and welcome to America's Roundtable Radio, which is aired through 14 radio stations and 50 affiliates in the Midwest via Lancer Broadcasting and Supertalk Media in the South. We trust that you all enjoyed the special time spent with loved ones and friends during Thanksgiving and appreciated the great blessings of faith, life, family, and freedom. This weekend on America's Roundtable Radio from Washington, D.C., we will hear from a great American, one of the greatest historians, and an intellectual giant of our time, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. His focus is classics and military history. Professor Hansen is the author of hundreds of articles, book reviews, and newspaper editorials on Greek, agrarian, and military history, and essays on contemporary culture. He has written or edited 24 books and is the author most recently of The Dying Citizen, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won, and notable titles including The Father of Us All, The Savior Generals, and The End of Sparta, among other titles. We encourage our engaged listeners to visit victorhanson.com. It is indeed our great honor and privilege at America's Roundtable Radio to welcome once again Professor Victor Davis Hanson. Welcome, sir. Welcome, Dr. Hanson. Thank you for having me. In his new book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, Dr. Victor Davis Hanson reminds us that what distinguished Western democracies in general, and the American Republic in particular, was robust citizenship. He clearly articulates to us through his book that the idea of citizenship originated in the 5th century Greek city-states, and he quotes Alcidamus, who wrote, I quote, Nature has made no man a slave, unquote. Professor Hansen also brings to our attention the words, Civis Romanus Sum, I am a Roman citizen, that once gave a people great pride and projected to its enemies an overpowering fear of Rome. And Cicero relayed how Rome protected her children wherever they might venture with the words, I quote, could ward off all blows, unquote. And for the community of faith, Appreciating the sacred words, the Hebrew scriptures highlights references to the term citizens as found in Joshua chapter 8, verse 33, with Moses and Joshua. And I quote, And all Israel and their elders and officers, the updated translations refer to the officers as citizens, and their judges, stood on this side of the ark, and on that side before the priests, the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the stranger, as he was that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim, and half of them against Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel, unquote. 
And also in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 12, when David fleeing, then King Saul asked a question about the citizens of Keilah. And we are reminded in the Christian text, the Acts of the Apostles, about Paul, once a Pharisee, I quote, who said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Unquote. Dr. Hansen, in your excellent book, The Dying Citizen, you outline the threats to U.S. citizenship dividing them in two major areas. First, ancient phenomena returning to undermine American citizenship, including bifurcation of society, migrations of large populations, and the primary identification by tribal loyalties. And second, more contrived and deliberate undermining of citizenship through the work of a professional and often ideologically driven elite. And Dr. Hansen, as we look forward to delving into these areas in greater detail, could you kindly share with us what led you to write this excellent book, The Dying Citizen? Well, I, I started in 2019, and I, this was before the COVID onset of COVID and that disastrous year 2020 and indeed 2021. But I started to see uh, the system itself starting to wear. And by that, I mean the stuff of life affordable housing, uh, students being able to pay, go to college without onerous loans, simple safety in cities in California that I'd grown up in and I'd, I'd visited, they were no longer safe. Homelessness, uh, I'd never seen anything like it. I, I had traveled widely in the 70s and 80s when I was younger in the so-called third world, but what we had on the streets of Los Angeles or San Francisco or even Sacramento or Fresno made those that poverty pale in comparison. Nothing like this. And uh, so I was wondering, what has gone wrong with the United States? What's gone wrong with American culture? So as you said, I divided it into two areas, the pre-modern, pre-civilizational impulses that are always with every society. That is the, the desire for people to have two societies rather than one. And it's a lot of burden to be self-governing. So usually you have an elite or a wealthy or an overclass that seizes cultural social power, whether it's the NBA or Wall Street or corporate America or academia or K-12, through Silicon Valley. And then you have a subsidized poor, but you don't have a viable self-reliant. And all the statistics I looked at suggested that the middle class had been both shrinking in size and then uh, becoming more enfeebled in economic autonomy. And then very quickly, you have to have borders. Every country in the world has borders, past and present. We don't really have it. We talk about a porous southern border, but we don't have a southern border. We've had, we're going to have two million people cross that border. So why why is that? And I discuss that in the book a lot. Of, there were self interested parties: Mexico, Central America, the left, the race industry. But essentially, the citizen lost control over the dialogue, the vocabulary, the political process and allowed people who had no political support, because the polls suggest today 65% do not want an open border. And uh, I talk about that. And then this other pre-civilizational birds of a feather flock together, tribalism. It's a very old concept. It's never worked. We're one of the few multiracial uh, democracies of any size, except maybe for India and Brazil, and they don't have a very good record compared to ours, at least up to now. So I was talking about why we were surrendering to this primordial impulse that everybody has to feel more comfortable with people who look like themselves, which is the enemy of meritocracy. It's an enemy of consensual government. And yet we're regressing. 
So that was these, what I call pre-civilizational forces. And then I said there were post-civilizational or post-modern, the rise of unelected legislator, uh, people who had legislative, executive, and judicial power, whether they were the heads of the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, the IRS, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, people like Clapper and Comey and uh, Mueller and Milley and uh, Lois Lerner, except the people who've been in the news, Anthony Fauci, etc. Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot of people who believe human nature changes, so books of the past or ideas of the past are irrelevant, and they seize power in 2021 in the sense that the Democratic Party now is trying to change the system. It doesn't secure or guarantee the results that it wants. So whether it's a 233-year-old electoral college or voting prerogatives of the states and national elections to set balloting laws or 150 years of a nine-person court, Supreme Court, or 60 years of a 50-state union or 180 years of a Senate filibuster, they're all on the table now because they want to evolve to a new system because they think that we're different people. We have to have a different constitution, a different progressive. We're, we're progressing, I should say. And then finally, and you know this as well as I do or better, there's people in this country primarily on the two coasts who believe in globalism, that they're citizens of what the Greeks called cosmopolitan, citizens of the world, and that the United States is an ossified, calcified society, didn't keep up with the rest of the world, so we need to join the Paris Peace Accord or work with multilateral parties in the Iran deal. And uh, Tony Blinken, if you remember, Blinken invited in the United Nations to adjudicate whether we were racist. International Criminal Court said they wanted to look at the behavior of American soldiers in Afghanistan. So it was all built on the premise that if you have 190 nations in the world and only about 80 of them are constitutional, and out of that 80, probably 50 really constitutional, you were going to turn over your sovereignty to a group like that, the majority of which is illiberal, Iran, North Korea, Russia, China, Cuba, Venezuela. And yet that's what people seem to do. But it's engineered, again, in the second half of the book by an elite. What I, I have a long section on the Davos Great Reset right. and people who felt that COVID gave them an opportunity, grandees in economics and finance, the Bill Gates, the Mike Bloomberg's, Klaus Schwab. They were all going to get together and then organize tax policy, diversity policies for corporations, climate change policy, and from top down, superimpose those on sovereign nations. Dr. Hansen, in your book, The Dying Citizen, you write, and I quote, citizenship is synonymous with the freedoms and the protection by law and custom, which transcend individual governments and transient leaders of the day. The U.S. Constitution guarantees citizens security under a republic whose officials they alone choose, and that assures them liberties. What exactly are these privileges? Everything from free speech, due process, and habeas corpus, to the right to own and bear arms, to stand trial before a jury of one's peers, and to vote without restrictions as to race, religion, and sex. Citizenship in the United States is now being pulled in two different and often antithetical directions, from below and above, spontaneously and yet by design, through both ignorance of and intimacy with the Constitution. End of quote. Dr. Hansen, could you kindly share with the listeners about these dangerous developments for the American citizen? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that 
citizenship, the system that created and promotes it and protects it, does not lead to an equality, not of opportunity. They don't care about that. They, they want an equality of result. And that's the Marxist, neo-socialist, Jacobin view of history. And so when they look at the Constitution, and it erred on the side of personal liberty and freedom, rather than the French revolutionary model of fraternity and egalitarianism, and the reign of terror, the Jacobin. They don't look at the French Revolution as a failure. They look at our revolution as a failure. They think the French Revolution tried to mandate equality, tacked religion, it renamed the days of the week, it renamed the months of the year, it started with year zero, just in the, and that's their model. So they tear down statues, we have a new founding date of 1619, they create new words, they wanna create something new, totally rejecting the past. And in that process, if we ask, what is a citizen today? We used to have a checklist that, is, that separated a citizen from a resident, the illegal resident or legal resident, or a guest. And they were, you could leave the country on your own volition if you were a citizen only. Other people had to have permission to come in or leave your country. If you were a citizen, you could serve in the military. You could get federal or state uh, subsidies or entitlements. You could vote in an, an election. You could hold office. You could participate in a political campaign. And you were protected under the Bill of Rights. And two things happened with that. The resident now can serve in the military. They can receive any type of entitlement. They can vote in state and regional elections increasingly, not yet in federal, but they're attacking that. And they can participate in political campaigns, which is illegal at the federal level. And they can come across the border at will without a passport. But the only thing that I think distinguishes a citizen from a resident is the idea of holding office, and that's being challenged. And then the second erosion in citizenship is if you look at the Bill of Rights, they have been systematically attacked. And it used to be that conservatives would protect the Second Amendment more prominently than liberals, and liberals would protect the First Amendment. Liberals now are attacking the First Amendment more than they are the Second Amendment, even, if that's hard to believe. I'm at a campus today at Stanford University that if I were to go out into the free speech area and I were to quote scripture, or if I were to go into a class and say certain things that I thought Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton were great men, I would have be called up and people would want to know why I was engaging in hate speech. Or if someone accused a professor or another colleague and said, I felt intimidated or I was sexually harassed, that hearing would not be transparent. The defendant would not have a right to cross-examine. They would not have a right to bring in cross-examine witnesses and there wouldn't be due process. And I've seen that happen when I'm here at campus. Numbers of students have been expelled without due process. They don't have the right to face their accuser. That's happening. And unfortunately, when things start on campus, we kind of write them off as faculty lounge and irrelevant pie-in-the-sky utopianite. But that filters down. Critical race theory started in the university, and now it's in K-12 through school boards. Professor Hansen, you bring great attention to the vanishing middle class, and you share these concerns in the book, The Dying Citizen. And I quote, the natural historical 
referent for this dichotomy is certainly not the booming middle classes emerging following World War II. Instead, the image is one of the manners and keeps of medieval Europe amid peasant huts outside the walls, unquote. And you also mention about the fact that some 60% of Americans collect more payments from the government than they pay out in federal income taxes and other benefits as well. Professor Hansen, what are the factors that are contributing to the shrinking of the middle class that hardworking, decent Americans, the vibrant and engaged stakeholders and taxpayers of America? There's been a lot of them. One of them was, of course, globalization. People who had elite skills that couldn't be replicated, law, finance, tech, investment, they inherited or they found a market of 7 billion people. So all of a sudden, cities like Portland and Seattle and San Francisco, the Silicon Valley, Boston to Washington, they became, if you look at the income levels, they just soared. And if you look at the Fortune 400, the people on it no longer are multimillionaires that were in construction, assembly, timber, mining, farming. They were billionaires, multi-billionaires, staggering amount of money, but they were in tech and find the Bezos people or Zuckerberg or Bloomberg. So it was a switch that this globalization rewarded particular people. If you were in the middle of the country, I mean that metaphorically, but if you were working as a welder at a forklift factory, or you were a small grape farmer, or anything that could be Xeroxed and done more cheaply abroad was. If you had a small mine of a precious metal in Wyoming, and that was shut down because they they were overregulated, and then that process was done more cheaply abroad. Second thing was, we haven't had real interest uh, in a long time. And and I I don't mean oppressive interest, but I I mean the middle class person who followed the rules, saved, put 20000 in the bank, and then found that even before this hyperinflation, they were losing about 3% per year. They were getting about 1% interest on their passbook, and the inflation rate could go up to 3%, 4%. Now at 7%, they're becoming, and they don't have knowledge of the stock market, and they do not have knowledge of the intricacies of real estate investment, flipping houses, etc. So they had no alternative. It didn't really hurt the poor. The poor were poor. They were going to be subsidized no matter what. The wealthy had ways of making profits, and they didn't really care about the interest rate. So there was enormous transfer of wealth to wealthy people. It made it much harder to be a middle-class person. And there was no rewards for following the rules. I mean, if you, were gonna, if you had a service station, you're, you owned your very rare, and you, you saved money, and every year you put $12,000, $15,000 in your passbook account, you were going to be losing 1% to 2%, 3%. There was a lot of forces. Those are two. And then there was a psychological, cultural disparagement. And it wasn't just against Trump supporters, but that was where it was most prominent. Deplorables, clingers, Obama called them, irredeemables. And then Joe Biden had a rich vocabulary of chumps and dregs and losers. John McCain called the crazies who came out to vote. And so there was this idea that there's Neanderthals didn't learn how to code or they didn't learn how to follow the fracking fields or whatever it was. But we guess what I'm saying? We reversed cause and effect. We said they didn't get on the global bandwagon. And that was because they took opiates or they had high suicide rates or they're losers rather than vice versa. That the jobs vanished and we wrote off vast sectors of the country. 
And Dr. Hansen, in The Dying Citizen, you share about the danger of a new permanent caste of unelected officials, yes. regulators, and bureaucrats who hold enough gigantic power to usurp the citizens' control over their own government. And you write, and I quote, a reference to a deep state encompassed the entire permanent Beltway military echelon as well as the intelligence and investigative agencies. It also often includes the top officials of the civil service bureaucracies and administrative agencies. In the case of the United States, it can also denote their multifarious and often incestuous, not to mention lucrative, bureaucratic relationship with the Washington, New York media, lobbyists, Wall Street, and elite universities. And they see themselves as permanent custodians of U.S. power, morality, and influence. Dr. Hanson, what can U.S. citizens do to dismantle the deep state? I think they really have to task their officials with enforcing the law. And what do I mean by that? We have created a cast. Let's just take the Washington, New York cast. Prominent officials. The highest officials in the country in the administrative state. So we have James Comey, who's an FBI director. He goes under oath 245 times and says he can't remember. If you did that or I did that to an IRS agent, we would be put in jail. Andrew McCabe confesses that he lied four times to federal investigators. Neither one of them has ever faced any charges at all. Mm -hmm. Robert Mueller had a 22-month investigation, lifetime administrative FBI head, honorific, very famous guy. It was based basically on two things, the GPS fusion project and the Steele dossier. He went under oath and said he knew nothing about either one of them. Mark Milley is a chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. It says under statute, it is not permissible for the Joint Chiefs to interfere with a chain of command. He called in regional commanders and broke the law and said, if you get an order to be aggressive toward China, I'm, it has to come through me. I can subvert that. I can stop it. And then he went and called his Chinese counterpart out of the chain of command. I could go on, but you look at Anthony Fauci. When, where in the Constitution does it say that Anthony Fauci can adjudicate whether a landlord can collect rent from a tenant? But he had the power to say that during this crisis, uh, I'm going to determine that if you want to cancel rental contracts or suspend them, you can when he was asked. And so he was really adjudicating major economic policy. He is today. He was talking about lockdowns. When is it his prerogative to shut down Christmas gatherings or to tell people that they have to wear masks? He's not been elected to anything. And there's a lot of science that contradicts a lot of what he said. So we've invested this money and power and influence to these uh, technocrats, I would guess that we call them. They all have degrees. They're all very glib. They all seem to navigate around Washington. We have 40% of the country works for state, regional, or federal government, and we have 2 million in the federal government. So it's kind of like an organism that it's on its own. It's not controlled, and it feeds on more federal money. And so it's always trying to create more regulations, more duties, more expansive responsibilities. And then it turns around and says, I need more money. I need higher taxes. It's what Eisenhower, when he left, he, he warned us about the military-industrial complex. I would add, he should have said the military-industrial-investigative intelligence complex. I, I'm very worried about it, to tell you the truth. I have highest esteem for retired four-star generals and admirals, but it says in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, Article 88, a retired flag officer shall not disparage or attack the commander-in-chief, and that's 
all we heard with these generals coming out of retirement saying, President Trump is A, Mussolini-like, B, Nazi-like, C, similar to the people who created the, the cages at Auschwitz, a confirmed liar all the time, and no one said a word that you were violating the statute. And so there's a sense that all of these people are exempt from the law and from accountability. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are joined by Professor Victor Davis Hansen, a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We would encourage our engaged listeners to seek out the book, The Dying Citizen. It is an excellent resource. Uh, certainly make sure that you give this as gifts to your friends and neighbors. And we encourage you to visit victorhansen.com, Victor. Hanson.com. Thank you so much, Professor Hanson, for joining us on America's Roundtable. We appreciate your continued principal leadership. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Hanson. And in the end, if you have maybe a very brief positive message, something that people could be optimistic about if yeah. they want to preserve government off by and for the people as taxpayers. Yes, I think it's optimistic because if you look at the polls, all of these policies that we discussed, oh, an open border, critical race theory, an inflationary economic policy, uh, they don't garner anywhere near 40% approval. So people have said, I, gave, I, I wanted to be disinterested. I looked at this. It's scary. It's frightening. It never works. And I'm going to try to correct it. And I think you'll see a correction politically in a year from now. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you so Hansen. much indeed. Thank you. We would like to encourage our listeners to get a copy of Dr. Victor Davis Hansen's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. And let me briefly quote another excerpt from The Dying Citizen. I quote, The administrative state is just this absorption of the constitutionally separate powers of the executive, legislative, and judicial branches into one omnipotent entity, into the hands of people never elected to their positions of power. The regulator, after all, has no constituency that periodically audits his conduct at the polls. He can create a rule and then become the judge of whether the targeted citizen has broken it. Finally, as an executive, he has the power to enforce upon the offender his own prior legislative and judiciary rulings. In response, the citizen has no direct control over the anonymous bureaucrat. Of course, in theory, the power to elect new representatives and executives who can curtail or expand the deep state ultimately resides with the people. Unquote. And in order to turn this theory in reality, the people need to elect those representatives who will curtail the deep state and uphold the separation of powers between three separate branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. America's journey has brought this republic and its citizenry to the edge of time's unique precipice. And as the saying goes, history is a terrible motorist, and it rarely ever signals its intentions when it's taking a turn. Now, it appears that in this rarely ever moment, America's history is turning a significant page. And in our conversation with Professor Hansen, he reminded us that the concept of the citizen is historically rare, as revealed by America's most valued ideals for over two centuries. But he also warns us that without shock treatment, American citizenship as we have known it may soon vanish. 
He warns us about how revolutionary years of 1848, 1917, and 1968, as well as 2020, ripped away our complacency about the future. He also states how Americans can rebuild and recover what we have lost. And indeed, for our fellow Americans, at the edge of time's great precipice, the choice at this is ours and ours alone. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lanzami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. 